Paul is getting towards the end of his life and ministry. In Philippians, he told us, I count all things as lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. He said that I want to be found in him. I want to know him. Can you imagine a guy who served the Lord for about 35 to 40 years like Paul has, who's, who's turned the world upside down, saying something like, oh, I want to get to know the Lord. You would think if anybody knew the Lord, it would have been Paul. But Paul, as he gets towards the end of his life, says, I wish that I would know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be conformed in his death to the manner of his death and the joy that was in it, the purpose that was in it. Paul wanted to lay hold of what Jesus wanted in and from him, forgetting the things that were behind, pressing on towards the things, the goal, the prize, the high calling. That's where Paul was at this time in his life. So tonight we are going to see the second of Paul's last three letters, the pastoral epistle called Titus. Timothy, along along with Titus, were both young pastors sent by Paul to churches he had planted. It's kind of like Brandon and I. He's a little bit younger than I am. I'm a little bit older. If you were here when we started the first Timothy, I carried my pulpit off and he brought his little stand up because he's a different style teacher. But that's the type of thing that's going on between Paul and Timothy and Titus. Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus and the churches around there. No buildings yet for the churches, just meeting in homes. But the church was called the Church of Ephesus, even though there may have been a hundred different home fellowships. They were one church and they would come together, each under its own pastor and its own leadership. Timothy was Paul's emissary to the church and the pastors there. And Titus is to the church that's in Crete. And it's important, to, again, to realize that he's only talking about one church in these areas. It'd be like us saying the church on the mountain and having just one church and meaning all of us. It seems as if they have traveled with Paul after his first Roman imprisonment. He left Titus on Crete, and then he sends back this letter proving authority and, uh, and, and direction for the church, much the same as he did with Timothy in that first letter that we looked. We'll see much of the same instructions from uh, 1 Timothy, choosing leaders, rebuking false teachers, setting things in order, teaching sound doctrine, and good works. Let's pray. Father, as we get into the book of Titus, I pray that you would speak to us, you would guide us, and you would direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. A little history lesson. In A.D. 64, this is the time that this letter was written. This is the events that are going on. That's the year that Rome burned. The military was in revolt against Nero. The fire burned for five days and five nights. About 80% of the city was destroyed, 10 out of 14 different districts. And one of the districts that wasn't burned was the one that most of the Christians lived in. And so Nero blamed them. He said the Christians are why the city has burned down. Nero at this time was delusional, he was uh, paranoid, he was losing favor with the people, but he and Paul had something in common. They both had four years to to live. They both die in the same year in 68. So Nero had the Christians arrested, and then he divided them into two groups. One group, 
He got um, animal skins, dipped them in blood, put them on the Christians, and took them down to Circus Maximus, the, the big arena that they had there, put them in the stadium, and turned the wild, uh, wild animals, especially the wild dogs, who he had starved on these Christians. The other Christians he took, and he covered them with pitch, and he hung them on the gardens around the palace, and he got in his chariot one night, and he rode, and he lit them on fire to be lights in his garden. That's how deranged this person was. That's how um, uh, persecuted the church was that was turning the world upside down. Last uh, week, I talked about change and how change was coming and how it'll be interesting to see how we as a church uh, respond to the changes that are coming our way. Paul had written in 58, the year 58, a few years before this, the book of Romans, and he told the Romans that these words from Romans 8. Let me just read them to you. Uh, this is verses 35 to 39. These are the Romans that are being burned. These are the Romans, Christians, that are being put into um, the arena with the wild dogs and the wild animals eating them up. Paul had written them six years earlier, and he said this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the, so, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So the Roman Christians had those words from Paul as they were being persecuted, as they were being uh, put to death. In Jerusalem at this time, Florus was the new Roman governor, and he's the last governor of Judah. Josephus writes about him, he robbed the temple... He forced, his forces plundered the city. He tried to control the city, and Israel was on the brink of war with Rome. Moving just into the next year, A.D. 65, a monumentous year for both Israel and the Roman Empire. Everyone knew what was coming. Jewish Christians were leaving Israel and Judah in mass, like a great exodus, like we're seeing it with Syria in the last year or two. These events provoked Paul to write these three epistles to the young pastors. Peter also wrote his letter to the fleeing Jewish believers. First and second Timothy and Titus are all about getting things in order. Peter wrote these words in the beginning of the first letter that he wrote. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispensation in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So all of the people are being moved away from where they've been in their churches, especially the Jewish churches. The Jewish Christians fleeing into areas populated by Gentile churches, which need to be ready. Could you imagine exiles being scattered and pushed out and needing a place of safety? And don't we see that in the world today? People homeless looking for a place of safety? People that are being exiled by families, people that are being exiled by their countries, people that are being exiled by terrorists. 
Don't we as a church need to be open to that? I'll talk more about that later when we get into doing good works. In 1 Timothy, when Brandon taught us on that, we saw that the gospel was important. It was preached. Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy was encouraged, and Paul encouraged Timothy to pray the importance of prayer, and he gave the components of prayer. In chapter 3, he said, pick out leaders in all the churches, ordain leaders. Titus is going to say the exact same thing. Appoint them. It's urgent. Things are changing. He said to instruct words of faith and good doctrine in Timothy. He said, Timothy, you're young, but be an example. Pay attention to your personal devotional life. And in chapter 6, he says, but you, man of God, flee these things. And he listed some and pursue these things and fight the good fight. So in both 1 Timothy and Titus, we sense a sense of urgency on Paul's part. He's urgent. He's writing with a purpose here. He is trying to tell these young guys, get this work done. I've left you in Ephesus, Timothy, and all these church, um, uh, yeah, Timothy, get all these churches organized, get them in, in the setup. Uh, Titus, I'm leaving you in Crete. There's lots of churches there. Get them in order. That's what he's telling them. The Gentile church was about to triumph over the more legalistically inclined Jewish churches. Here's been this rivalry that's been going on. We've talked as we read through these um, epistles of the Judaizers were going around. There's been this, oh, no, you have to do it our way. No, no, we have grace. We don't need to do those things. We don't need to keep the law. We don't need to be circumcised. We've talked about all those things going on. Well, now it's going to be this Gentile church is going to be welcoming in these exiles from the Jew. Jewish-oriented type of churches, just like we have differences in the church today. But if you come in here and you're coming from an Orthodox church or a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church, we should all get along because we all love Jesus. And that's one of the things that that Titus is all about, trying to do that thing. So the the Gentile church was about to be responsible for inheriting a bunch of exiles. Circumstances... Or change. Remember that word from last week, change? Talked a lot about change that was coming. Was causing grace to triumph. When change happens in lives around us, grace should be something that we're ready to pour out on people. So let's look at the first few verses of Titus. Titus chapter 1, first four verses. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, According to the faith of God, elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Paul establishes his authority. He's writing a letter of authority for Titus to be able to show to the people, I have the authority of Paul. Paul is telling me to do these things. Paul, being close to the end of his life, talks of the hope of eternal life, and we'll see more about that in a little bit as well. And he says that God had promised, and God cannot lie. God promised eternal life to us. He cannot lie. God promised he'll come again. He cannot lie. There's other things he can't do. God can't learn. God cannot deny himself. 
And God cannot love you more than he has already loved you. And I'm sure there's a few more of those things that we could think about. But he cannot lie. He cannot learn. And he cannot love you more than he's already loved you. In verse 3, it talked about the word becoming flesh and it lived among us. But he's talking about now the preaching of the gospel. And as we looked at last week in, uh, John, in the prayer in John 17, how the words that have been passed down for thousands of years have brought so many of us to faith in Jesus Christ without walking with him, without talking with him directly. It's the faith of the gospel that's being presented. And that's what Paul is passing on to Titus. He's saying, take this with you. Um, so the word, the word was made known by the preaching of the gospel, it says there. It was given to me by commandment. He told Timothy, I charge you with it. I give it to you. So to Titus, he says there in verse 4, a true son in the common faith, one generation to the next. While not mentioned in Acts, Titus is not mentioned at all in Acts. He's mentioned 13 times in the other epistles. So he must have been a pretty close friend of Paul's. He must have known him pretty well. And I think Timothy did as well. um, well. For sure, he's one of his closest companions. Well, Pastor Mike, these guys are pastors. Why do we need to study pastoral letters? Well, he's going to get to that. There's lots in here about you guys, too. So we'll see what happens here. The other thing is we, we teach the whole counsel of God. So we're going through the whole Bible and they, we've got to go through these. But anyhow, verses five to nine, Paul again gives the listing of the qualifications for an elder as he did in first Timothy three, both Timothy and Titus again have spent much time with Paul. So they didn't need to know what the qualifications were, were. they knew them. So this was an authoritative letter where, they could, where Paul could show this letter to the people in Crete and say, see, this is why you can't be, or this is why I have chosen you, because you meet these qualifications that Paul gave me and commanded me to do. So that was one of the things. It's an authoritative document, so Paul lists those. So let's look at some of these. We're going to not be able to hit every single verse and explain those, but I'd like to look at verses 7 through 9. For a bishop, which is the same as an overseer um, or an elder, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince those who contradict. Most of the qualifications in both Timothy and Titus for elders have nothing to do with knowledge or skill, but has everything to do with your character and your characteristics. What type of person are you? A person's lifestyle, a person's relationships. How are you doing at home? How are you doing with your loved ones? How are you doing with the people in the church? And this provides a window into the character that we should have for uh, elders. A leader is to be blameless. He's to blame the word blameless. There, he's to have a good reputation. He's have to be somebody you trust. He's a steward of God. Interesting that the higher the rank of your Master, 
the higher the rank of a steward you are. If you're the assistant to an ambassador, that's a pretty high-ranking person. But if you're the chief of staff of the president, that's a higher-ranking position. You are stewards of God. So those of you who are in ministry, those of you who are serving as volunteers and working in different ministries, you're a steward of God. So you have to be a good steward. You should be hospitable. What a great requirement considering there's an exile going on. All of the Jewish Christians are being pushed out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, and they're coming towards Asia, and they're going towards Europe, and they're going that way. If you're an elder and they come into your town, you need to be hospital. You need hospitable. You need to be able to open up your home and take care of them and to minister to them. Not self-pleasing, not unaccommodating. You know, some of us would love to help people, um, but, oh, you know, we wouldn't be there on time if we stopped and helped that person on the road or uh, just a lot of different things, a lot of different sometimes excuses we put out there. And I know there's a safety issue and this world is crazy, and so you don't want to you don't want to pull over on the freeway and help help somebody. But how often is it that we are self-pleasing and we don't accommodate the person that we should be accommodating because it will affect our life or our schedule or the things that we're doing? You should be a lover of what is good. And you should be looking for what is good. And I think this is an important thing for us to go around and trying to find people who are doing something good and let them know, hey, that was neat how you did that. Thanks for setting that. Thanks for that for setting up the, the meal thing, Sarah. That was great. Find people that are doing good and let them know. It's so often that we go around and we find somebody and say, well, you know, you didn't do exactly the way I wanted you to do that. That's, that's not going to grow the church. That's not going to grow relationships. Thanks for helping with communion back there today, okay? Those are the kinds of things we want to pass around to the different people as we see it. So look for things that are good. A leader is to be blameless. He's to be of a good reputation. He's to be sober-minded. That is uh, respectful. And you're supposed to be uh, sober-minded towards yourself in the way that you approach life. You are to be just. That's towards men. You're to be doing things fairly. You're not to have partiality. You're to be holy, and that's towards God. So here he's laying out something for self, something for others, and something for God. You're to be self-controlled, temperate, one having his passions, his tongue, and his body under control. Those are the qualifications that he's talking about for elders. Verse 9 is a key verse. Hold fast to the word. For by it, sound doctrine is proclaimed. When people come in with oddball doctrines or things that they want to proclaim, they usually are taking one verse or one passage and trying to make a whole doctrinal statement out of it without looking at the whole counsel of God or even the whole chapter that they pull their verses out. That's why it's important for us to know the whole doctrine, the whole thing. It will convict the false teachers, and that's one of the things that Paul is stressing here for the Timothy in the next few verses as he deals with the false teacher. teacher. So verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Jewish Christians are all coming in and they all have these rules and regulations that they're trying to bring into the church. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things that they ought not For the sake of dishonest gain, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, 
lazy gluttons. Wow, what a great prophet, huh? The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure things, are, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So he's really calling them out. He deals with the false teachers. You know, in the parable of the sower, when the seed is sown, the first one that comes along is the enemy, immediately wants to grab what was sown in your heart and take it away. And that's what these false teachers are doing. The first on the scene is always the enemy to, uh, to mess with your mind. Yeah, you didn't get saved. You know, that's not going to do any good. You know, you came home and now you're going to go back to the same old stuff. Why would you go down there to that church group and, and uh, walk forward or, or say a prayer or talk to those people? You're not going to, it's not going to work. It seems that the Jewish legalists were trying to do the same thing. Remember in Acts 2, um, Peter had given his message. Well, well, Cretans were there. They were present. And so some of the early church that was on Crete were probably purists. They probably didn't know all of the Jewish traditions. They were Cretans who had come down there to worship, and they came back, and they were now they had the, uh, the influx of the Jewish believers. Um, Epimenius, who is the, the, the poet, the famous poet that he's quoting, uh, he describes the Cretans in another writing. He says, they are liars. They are, fierce, uh, they are a ferocious uh, beast, and they're idle gluttons. Remember God who cannot lie? And now he's talking about a prophet who they cannot tell the truth. People would say, you speak like a Cretan. That was a slang, the saying that you're just a liar. Don't you remember they did that in the Corinthian church too? They said, oh, he lives like a Corinthian, meaning that he lived an immoral life, an impure life. Following the instructions to rebuke those teaching the Jewish fables and the rules of man, Paul is saying that the whole system of living by rules is evil and leads to burdensome life full of sin. And it's so hard for us to grasp this, but when the church puts rules and regulations on the members of the church, it becomes a burden. And it becomes a burden and a struggle for you. And you go home saying, I can't do it. I was, you know, I made a promise to read that Bible and I messed up three days this week. And man, I just feel terrible. That's not the idea behind the Bible. The pledge for the Bible is, hey, somebody spent some money for the Bible. And if you're going to take it, read it. That's, that's the whole deal. But it's not an obligation. You can still come back in fellowship even if you miss a day during the week. Okay? <laughs> do not stay home because you're not up to speed on your year-to-date Bible. That's just a, a tool to help you grow in the things of the Spirit. And it, it's so hard. Um, I think man-made regulations can be the greatest enemy of a deeper spiritual life because you aren't free to allow the grace of God to let you live the life that you want to live in Christ. So be careful of those things. And all things there is talking about the non-moral issues, such as food and clothing and circumcision and all that type of stuff. In verse 16, Paul changes it up a little bit for us. He's bringing in a new subject, telling us that our character should produce good works. Well, wait, it's 
Pastor Mike, you've told us before, it's all about grace, not works. Well, the grace in your life should produce good works, and we're going to see why as we continue on as we head into chapter 2. Our character should produce good works. Chapter 2, Paul changes the focus from correcting the false teachers to encouraging the faithful, and this is now written to us as a church. He's going to address the mature and the less mature. He's going to address the men and the women. He's going to address servants. He's going to address how we should act with civil authority. What a blessing it is to be in a church that has some seasoned, mature Christians who are willing to give their time and their energy to younger Christians who are just starting their walk with Christ, who are willing to help young families, who are willing to help in the ministries to different people, to show examples and to speak into their young lives. So the first few verses of chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. But you, it starts out, but you, in contrast to the false teachers, the mature men, be sober, or the word would be better translated, vigilant. Be serious about the things that you're doing. Reverent, serious, and easy to respect. You know, I sometimes wonder that... um, You know, I have a very wonderful, beautiful wife who rebukes and reproofs me very consistently, and that's why I know she loves me so much, because her rebukes and reproofs are are, uh, tender and and strong. She tells me not to fool around from the pulpit. She tells me not to horse around with some of you, especially the younger ones. And that's wise, because... I'm an older guy. I'm one of these older men. I'm supposed to be reverent. I'm supposed to be easy to respect. And if I'm out there horsing around and pulling gags and doing things like that, you know, it doesn't work that way, even though I'm going to have fun with that and do things like that. Let me tell you a story. I did this to Pastor Chuck. It was great. It was one of the best things I ever did to the poor man. Um, We were in Austria. You remember that? We were in Austria, and we went down for breakfast. And we sat down for breakfast, and it was Chuck and Kay and Mary and I, and we were sitting there. And I had on a T-shirt, and it said Calvary Chapel on the back. And on the front, it had a picture of the courtyard down there. And, and kind of, you know, it kind of was a unique courtyard, so it was kind of neat. And uh, Kay said something about the T-shirt. And I said, yeah, it's a brand new one. It just came into the chapel store there, and we were excited. I said, but it was hard to choose this one or the one with Pastor Chuck's picture on it. 
he got up. He pushed himself off the table, got up, and was walking up the stairs to call Romaine to tell him to get the T-shirt off the rack. And I had to, I, I had to go catch him and tell him that, that I was just joking. He wasn't happy. He was not happy. So I wasn't, I wasn't up here, though, when I did that, so it was okay. But we're supposed to be reverent. Temperate means self-controlled. Temperate is so important for us guys, and especially with our wives, guys. They don't need an emotional wreck for a husband. You know, we need to come home and be serious with them. We need to be temperate. We can't carry the burden of the day. We can't come home and and, uh, take out our frustrations and our anxieties on our wives. Sound or healthy in faith and love and patient. That's what the men are supposed to be. The mature women, likewise. Likewise, meaning the above as well. Not slanderers or given to much wine, but admonishing the younger. Be a teacher, ladies. Be a teacher. I love the, the Martha ministry that the ladies' ministry started. It's a thing that they do, I think, once a month uh, where they get together and the uh, more mature ladies take time to pass on a trait or something that they've learned to the younger women. They've done some arts and crafts thing. They've shown some sewing things. They've done some how to set a table for Thanksgiving. So people who have that experience and have learned over years how to do something, they're teaching younger women. And we've got a lot of young families now. Things that they can use practically. It's called the Martha Ministry. I think that's a great thing. Younger women, love your husband and children. Be a full of good character. Younger men, have the same characteristics as the older. So you have that plus more. And all things show a pattern of good works. When the world looks at us, when uh, the church looks at us men, they should see that we're willing to do good works. And then verse 9, he turns it over to employees, servants. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters as well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God and Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you, Titus. So again, he's passing these things on saying, look, Paul told me to tell you, to be temperate when you go home. I can hear you yelling and screaming down the street at your wife and your kids. Paul's coming and giving me authority to tell you, stop that. So that's what Titus was given the responsibility to do as the pastor of, um, of uh, the church in Crete, in Crete. So be obedient. Be well-pleasing to your boss. That's so important. I think that's also covered in Ephesians 6. Don't talk back. Don't steal. For the purpose of them seeing and appreciating the doctrine of the Lord. When people look at us out in the world, they should see good works and then they should know that it's to glorify God. It's our good works that should draw them to us. It's the love that we have for one another that draws people to us. In verse 10, how can we adorn the doctrine of God and salvation or God and our, God our Savior? The slaves of Crete were owned by who? 
They were owned by people who spoke lies, ferocious beasts, idle men, and gluttons. Those were the people of Crete that owned slaves. So the slaves were being told, you have to do good works because by doing that, you will be adorning, you will be wearing the goodness of God, our Savior. Romans 11, it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The more that we know of Jesus, the more we live like Jesus, the more we um, associate ourselves with Jesus, the more people are going to see that we have put him on or that we have adorned him. In verses 11 to 15, he talks about grace. He talks about the past. It has appeared to all men. Jesus came. Now, now, now the world has been taught sound doctrine, it says in verse, back in verse 9. But in verse 12, it talks about the present time. By the grace of God, we are being taught. So he's talking about that time right now. And the future, in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope. And aren't we looking for the blessed hope? Aren't we ready for that trumpet to sound and for us to be taken out of here? I am. So grace is uh, defined in its purpose in verse 14. He purifies for himself his own special people, and you are being purified. We call that process sanctification. You're being hopefully prepared and strengthened and encouraged to live godly lives, and they are to be zealous for all good works. That's what we're to do. And then in verse 15 again, the authority, like Timothy, a younger person being given authority to do those things. Chapter 3, Paul continues to exhort Titus concerning the ministry. And here's one that some of us have difficult with. Some of us have to struggle with this next section uh, as we look at the uh, local church and the way that it was explained. So remember them, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no man or no one to be peacefully gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God, our Savior, towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The local church on Crete, he's dealt with the aged, he's dealt with the young, the men, the women, the servants, And now he turns to our relationship with society, those outside of our fellowship here. Two more groups. First, the civil leaders. In the first three verses, Christians should be good model citizens. We should be good citizens in a country no matter whether we like what's going on or not. Don't you know that we're just pilgrims passing through? This is not our final home. This is not what counts. Our citizenship is in heaven. We know from uh, Romans 13 and from 1 Peter 2, both tell us to obey the authorities. We are to pray for those in authority. We should obey the laws of the land, and we should respect the office of our leaders. 
may not have much respect for the person, but the office needs to be respected. And so we are to hold that office up. We should, all, we sh- uh, we should all, uh, also support those who have similar values to ours, our Christian values. We should, we should support those who um, want to end abortion, those who want to um, fight for our liberties, those who want to put prayer back in school, those who want to do those things. We should get involved in those types of things, and we should do it, though, um, with a virtue to it. Um, if, a- if asked to break the law, we must refuse God's law. If, we, if we're asked to break God's law, then we can refuse. In verse 1, we see the, admission, the admonition to do this as a good work. He's really hammering this thing about good works. It's important for us to have good works. Speak evil of no one. Be peaceful, gentle, and humble. If people know that you're a Christian, you're a believer, and you're sitting around with a bunch of people, maybe at the donut shop, and you're having your coffee, and somebody starts to really take off on the president, and you join in and just, ah, I agree with you, yeah, rah, 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 rah. And they say, well, you're a Christian, you know. The instructions are you're not supposed to do that. You know, you might want to leave the conversation. You might want to stop it and say, hey, you know what? He's the president. He's been elected by the people. And right now he's in the office of president. We need to respect the office. Let's pray for him. Let's pray for him. That's what we need to do. And we have to be careful of that because, again, we are to be doing things for good works. We don't have to support his policies. We don't have to like it. We can speak against it. We can talk about it. But when it comes to the person or to that office, we have to be careful of what we've done. Um, Speak evil of no one. Be peaceful, gentle, and humble. In the middle of all of this conversation of good works, Paul reminds us clearly Justification is by grace. In verse 4, the gospel came, Jesus appeared, we beheld his flesh. In verse 5, it's not by works, but it's by his mercy that he saved us. In verse 6, and that was abundantly by Jesus. There's so much grace and so much mercy that has been given to us. It's abundant grace. It's abundant mercy. Then in verse 7, we are justified by grace and heirs of eternal life. You know, eternal life does not start with death or with the rapture or what, however you believe it. Eternal life uh, starts when you say, I do. When you say, I do believe. That's when your eternal life starts, and we have that. Verse 8 is a transitional verse, but it's one of the key verses of the book of Titus, along with um, chapter 1, verse 5. If you were to mark two verses that were key, uh, verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. That's what Timothy and that's what Titus were being, Titus were being told to do. Put things in order. Establish the church. Appoint elders. Get things cleaned up. Get rid of the false teachers because there's this exile that's coming and the church is going to be, need to be ready for it. If we believe in God, we should do good works. If we believe in God, older men and Older women, younger men and younger women, employees, citizens of the United States of America, we should do good works. We should be seen as someone who does good works. Could you imagine what the world's response would be if Christians really adorned Jesus? If we really took Jesus on and we really portrayed him well to our society that we live in, 
Could you imagine the impact, what would happen? He says there in verse 8, be careful. The word means is to take thought about it, to study how to do this, how to do these good works, how to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to all men. In verses 9 and 11 through 11, he talks about heretics. Heretics were in the church back then. Heretics are still in the church. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and the second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. A heretic comes from the meaning of the word cause to choose. In Galatians 5.20, heretics, or it lists heresy, uh, forming of parties and divisions as a work of the flesh. It's someone who comes to divide, someone someone who comes to um, uh, change the way things are, so to speak. It's one of the things in Proverbs that that the Lord hates. He hates those who cause discord amongst the brethren. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see that there were those who were causing divisions. There must be factions, it says. And you remember, one said, I was of Paul, and one says, I'm of Paulos, and I'm of Peter, and I'm of Christ. Well, how about this question? Are you with me, or are you with the pastor on this one? What about the worship? Are you with me, or do you like the way that's going Well, that happens in the church, and that so easily gets started, and it becomes something that sometimes it's hard to stop. Well, that's the divisive person that's talked about here. You know, sometimes we might have somebody who wants to bring a doctrine, and you might want to say, you have to be baptized fully immersed three times in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, or it doesn't work. It doesn't count. And you have to be also, when you come up the last time, be dunked forward to make sure. You know, so people come in and they create doctrines that aren't anything to do with Scripture, and they start a little clique or a little group, and they want to get in and they want to sit there and and, and uh, do that. It's, it's our job. It's my job. It's Pastor Brandon's job to watch for that within the congregation. And if we see it, we call it out and we stop it. So we're, we're to, to stop the, the the heretics. Are you for me? Or are you for the pastor? You're for the old pastor or the young pastor? I mean, there's the one for you. Um, <laughs> most church troublemakers love to argue. Church troublemakers love to argue. Some people just are argumentative. They just like to argue. And they, we all know them. Um, they, sometimes they'll argue over words, what this word means or what that word means. Genealogies. This was important for the Judaizers because what they were trying to do, they were trying to show that they had a position in the church because they were of the genealogy of David. And that means I'm of the genealogy of Jesus himself. And so you need to listen to me as I speak to you. I've come from Jerusalem, and now I'm here at Crete, and I want to take over your church because I have a genealogy from David through Jesus, so I'm somebody special. That's what was going on, and that's a heresy, and that needed to be stopped. In verses 10 and 11, it's regarding the divisive person. Paul tells them, rebuke them once, rebuke them twice, and after that, Don't pay any more attention to them. They're just causing trouble. So Paul has given us three doctrinal statements in this this letter to to Titus. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 10, he said, 
The knowledge of Christ must affect a transformation in us. We must, or, we must uh, adorn Christ. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, he says that God's grace redeems uh, believers from being slaves to sin and assures them of a blessed hope. And then in verse, chapter 3, verses 4 to, seven, 4 to 7, he emphasizes the kindness, the love, and the mercy of God saves. It's not by works of righteousness done by man, but nevertheless, good works should result. And if it has been stressed, look at this, so you'll get a feel for it. If, um, chapter 2, verse 16. They profess to know good works, to, to know God, but in works they deny him. And at the end of the verse, and disqualified for every good work. Chapter two, I'm sorry, that was chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a, par, a pattern of good works. In chapter, in chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave, um, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm uh, constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And then in verse 14. And let our... our people also learn to maintain good works to meet uh, urgent needs, and they may not be unfruitful. And then, how is this all to be done? He ends it by saying, grace be with you all. Good works can only be done by us being gracious people. We've received so much grace, we need to be gracious to others. And that's where the good work will come from. So for us, it's simple. He says, adorn Christ. And maintain good works. Adorn Christ and maintain good works.